God, we just thank you that we can walk boldly into your throne room of grace and then we can come before your presence and know that um, you just delight in hearing us and that you delight in us coming to you and that you provide for us mercy and grace in our time of need and forgiveness when we repent of the sin that you have so graciously convicted us of. And we just marvel at the relationship that you have provided for us. Father, we marvel at this, this book that has been included in, in your word. It's, it's a dark period of history, but boy, is it fascinating. And it is full of drama and intrigue and characters that we wonder how on earth could they've ever been included in Hebrews 11 as men of faith. And yet you have included them. And we do need to figure out why, why they are there and why this lengthy book of, of such broken of your people, Israel. Father, uh, if nothing else, I, I know that I'm seeing how gracious you are, how merciful you are, and how faithful you are to your people when they are faithless and undeserving. Father, all of us, we're, we can find ourselves in Israel. How often have we strayed? How often have we been disobedient? I know what the idols are that you've convicted me of in my heart, and, um, and yet, at the same time that you showed me the ugliness of that and how grievous that was to you, you met me right at that moment with your mercy and your love and your grace. And we, we thank you for that. Father, as we, we dig into Jephthah today, he's such an interesting character. And there's some controversy about him. But I pray that you would help us to see the main points of what you want us to see from this story and why you included it here. Bless our time now, Father. Lead us and guide us. In your son's name, amen. Okay. Um, Jephthah, is, he is, like I said, he's very interesting. We're about midway through the book of Judges. While I have you here, and I'll make this, I'll have Jim make the announcement again the second hour, but while I'm thinking about it, next week is spring break for the Stillwater Public Schools and Oklahoma State University, so we, we will not meet, okay? You, that means you get two weeks to do the lesson, which means you will start on it the Monday night before, right? <laughs> See, I know human nature. <laughs> if you do it earlier, you forget. It is a long lesson. It's Samson, and Samson is incredibly interesting. And it is long. It's a long passage of Scripture, and there's just a lot there. So I do encourage you to start in on it. And I put in there one of the pointers, which I have not set up until now, but I would encourage you to do. Sometimes just on your um, smartphone, if you don't have version, download it. Listen to the scripture. You know, while you're driving around town, put it on and just listen. And let, especially something like this, this is a narrative story. It's almost like listening to a book on tape. So get familiar with the story before you ever pull the papers out and begin your study just listening to what it says. It's a great way to make, you know, kind of kill two birds with one stone with your time. Okay, so how do you see... The cycle continuing again this week. Is the cycle continuing how? What happens? Okay, again, look what it says. The people turned again and did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and he sold him into the hands of whom? The Philistines. He sold him into the hands of the Philistines. How long was the oppression? 
for 18 years. So if we look at where, where Israel is, they're under the Philistines. And they are there for 18 years. How bad is it? Did you see some descriptive adjectives that told you the depth of this oppression? For crushed for 18 years. What else? Severely distressed. And we've seen up to this point, each week, it's kind of becoming a uh, repeated question. How do you see the brokenness of Israel? What's different this time in their brokenness? They did evil in the sight of the Lord. What's, e what's the evil thing that they do? They worship other gods. As we've talked about, and I want to reemphasize, it's, it's not so much evil as we define it, it's evil as God defines it. And God says, what is evil is, I am your God. I am Yahweh, the one you are to worship solely me because I am a jealous God and you are going after these other gods. Not only have they gone after the Baal and the Asherah, who else have they gone after this time? Yes, yes, you've got the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. So, they just have added more idols. They've not only spiraled down, they've added more to their mix of who they will worship. And did you notice when you did that little chart, um, number three, where I said, who are the countries that God saved Israel out of? When, he, when they cry out to him, and we'll talk about that in a second, and he says, he rehearses, the countries that he has saved them from. You see the gods that they are worshiping. And then who is oppressing them? It's not just the Philistines oppressing them, but who else? The Ammonites. Did you see, did something, did you see a connection there between who they're worshiping and who is oppressing them? And what is it? I hear, I see mumbling. No, everyone, no one's willing to speak up. They're worshiping the gods of the people that oppress them, aren't they? So what does that tell you? Well, they're crazy. <laughs> Why would you do that? <laughs> it is crazy. Do you see any other connection? Do you see some, some truth that maybe God is teaching us? Okay, they're following the trend. Oh, I don't think so. No. Well, there might have been, but not when you see a statement like the people did evil again in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals and the Asherah. You want, when you see the cause and effect, are you, are you with me? If, if you look, it, here's, here's a hermeneutical principle. Here's something for you to think about. When you look at those observation tips, it'll say, look for cause and effect. Here's a cause, here's the effect. Okay, here's the cause. They do evil in the sight of the Lord. They worship other idols. What is the effect? God in his anger and in his faithfulness of chastening his people for their covenant and faithfulness hands them over to oppressors. There's the effect. Cause and effect. Cause or result of what you have just done. Do you all see what I'm saying there? Okay, so he has, so I think they're already worshiping these idols before they're ever oppressed. 
by them. That's my opinion because that's what I see in that cause effect. Okay, follow that thought. Did you hear, did you hear Tony? When you worship other gods, then your life is a mess. You're powerless. You, whose power are you now under? Who are, here's, here's what I'm trying to get you to see. The very gods, what, what do idols promise? Oh, do they promise nothing? No, what do they, they deliver nothing. What do they promise? Why do we go after them? They pro, what do they promise? Be more specific than everything. Why do we feel such a need to have idols in our life? It'll bring satisfaction. It brings contentment. Something tangible. Okay, it gives us what we want. It gives us what we desire. It fulfills selfishness inside of us. It promises us an identity, doesn't it? We find identity. Moms, even some dads, what do we do if we make our children an idol? We, we are gaining a sense of identity from their performance, aren't we? Because they're a reflection of us, and so we've made them up into an idol, and that's where we're getting our sense of identity from what they do. And that's why it's so disappointing when they don't do what we wanted them to do, which they will do. <laughs> if, you, if you have them long enough, you all that with babies, I'm just letting you know that's what's going to happen. I forewarned you. <laughs> One day they will do what you did not want them to do. They will make a decision or they'll be disobedient. It's just going to happen. So they promise all these things. That's why we go after them. We believe the lie. But then now, what do they actually deliver? Nothing or enslavement. They do not deliver what they promise. What they do deliver is enslavement. So what has happened to Israel? What is their, their brokenness? Because here, this is a common theme every week, is Israel's, not only their unfaithfulness, but their brokenness. And we need to see that each time. And I think you can already see, I've said that the, um, Jim and I have said, it's not so much a cycle that gets repeated, it is a spiral it gets worse, and we see how it's worsening this time because they not only have a couple of idols they're worshiping, they're worshiping every single one of them around them. And in doing so, they become enslaved, not only to those idols, but to the very people who worship those idols. And that's what idolatry does. It enslaves. It promises something it cannot deliver, so it doesn't give you those things. Then when you get entrapped in it, you're enslaved to it. Do you see that? I mean, I've seen that in my personal life. When, like when I prayed, God revealed to me about five or six years ago an area in my life that was just, he said, Nancy, that is idolatry. It is absolute idolatry. And, it, and as I confessed that and I saw it and he revealed it to me, then I could see how enslaved I was to this relationship. And it was hard to let it go, but it was the best thing I ever did. Does that make sense? That's what idolatry does, and that's where Israel is. And essentially, how does God respond? How does he respond this time? Well, first of all, what do they do? They're, they're crushed. They're severely distressed. 18 years under the Philistines, and we have the Ammonites. Let's get them up there. And what do they do? Familiar. They cry out to the Lord. 
because they are so oppressed and they are so miserable. And how does he respond to them? <laughs> yeah, why don't you go try to crying out to these gods that you think are going to give you everything you want? I mean, did you see what's different, though, when they cried out this time? They, well, the first time, what, what, that's the second time. The first time, what does it say? Let, let's, let's look at the words of the text. What does the text say? It looks like they're repenting, doesn't it? Because it's, what does it say? They're confessing. We have sinned. Um, let me just get it in front of me so I get it right. Is it verse 15? No, before that. And 10, we have sinned against you because we have forsaken our God and served the Baals. And it is there then that God says, didn't I save you from all these people? Do you not remember everything that I have done for you and how I saved you from all these people? Do you hear him? Do you hear him? And yet you go worship their gods? So go cry out to them and let them save you out of your time of distress. You, you have put so much faith in them. Let them see what they can do to deliver you. That's the first time he has, he has said that. So then what do they do? So it is, it's like in a repent. It sounds very repentant, but God's response reveals what? It's still just a cry. Why would he say, go let those other gods deliver you if you think they can, when they had said, we have sinned against you? There's still something not right in their heart, and he sees it. There's a recognition of we are in the mess we are in because of our consequences, but there's still something lacking of full repentance. And it's when he says, well, why don't you go see if these gods can help you? You've put so much faith in them. Go find out what they can do for you. Let's see how merciful they are to you and how faithful they are to you. That then they finally, there's the real repentance. We have sinned due to us. Whatever seems good to you, only please deliver us that this day. Because what do they do this time that they didn't do the first time when they said we've sinned? They put away their foreign gods. And did you notice this verse? Did you notice the second half of that verse? They served the Lord, and he became impatient over the misery of Israel. What does that mean? Did anybody go look around? Did anybody have thoughts about that particular phrase? He became impatient over the misery of Israel. I don't, yeah. Is it kind of what you thought? Did anybody look at another translation? Grieved? What translation is that, Diane? The NLT says he's grieved. Then impatient, doesn't it? Yeah, and I didn't either. I kept wanting to go dig around and see if I had anything in the Hebrew, and I just didn't have time. But I did look at the other translations. This is where, this is a, another thing that's it's helpful to do. When, you're, when you read something, you're like, I'm not really sure what that means. Go read it in several different translations. Mm -hmm. Did you hear her? NIV says that he could bear um, Israel's misery no longer. NLT says he was grieved. Um, I think the NASB also used grieved. 
Here's what I came away with, and I think it's in fitting with the context and everything that we've seen about him so far. What have we seen so far? Apart from this, each week when they've cried out, what has God done and why has he done it? He's raised up a deliverer, hasn't he? He's heard their cries, even though they were not repentant. He, in his mercy, look at this. It's God, God, his compassion and his mercy and his covenant faithfulness. All of these things act on their behalf. And even when they are not repentant, he grieves over the mess and the misery that they are in. And out of these delightful characteristics of who he is as Yahweh, he acts on their behalf and raises up a deliverer, delivers them from the hand of the, of the oppressor. And until um, this week, we see and he gives the land rest for a period of time. I think what this is saying, if I take into account um, all of it, I think impatient can be weaved in there along with the grieving. He is just brokenhearted over the mess they have gotten themselves into. And I think that's in keeping with the context of everything we've seen so far and everything we will see as we continue on through the book. Here is God. That's why I put him up here. Here he is. He is up here. Those of y'all that took those theology classes, he's above the ark. You know what I'm talking about? He is up here, above the ark, in charge of all of history, in charge of his covenant promises, looking down on his people, whom he loves, and who he has set his hand upon, that he is desiring for them to be in relationship with him. What did, he, when he brought, what did he do? He hears the cries and he brings them out of Egypt. You know, he delivers them from slavery. He gives them the law. He gives them the priesthood. He gives them the tabernacle so that they can be in relationship with him. I will be your God and you will be my people. That is personal relationship with me. That is, that is communion with me, your God, your creator, your sovereign Lord. And that's what he desires and that is his whole purpose from Clear back in Genesis, when Adam and Eve fought, fell till the end of Revelation 21, I am bringing about my redemptive purposes to redeem my creation in, in man that I might have perfect relationship with them. And so I think when it says he's impatient and he's grieved, he's looking down and saying, oh my goodness, look at this horrible mess they're in again. And he is impatient with it, but he is also brokenhearted about it. Would you all agree with that? Did you all hear Tony? It's, the, it's, it's, it's what we do with our kids. You know, if you've had a child that's been wayward, then, then you really get this. You, you get the sense of grieving of the mess that they've gotten themselves into by the choices that they are making. And yet the impatience of it, right? The impatience with them. That why can't they wake up and smell the coffee and do what they need to do to get it right? So, and what Tony was saying is that some of why, you know, we have mother and father and children. And in, those of you all that have children, you know, once you have children, you get a, you get a, a whole new layer and glimpse of, of who God is and his patience toward us and his love toward us. Especially if you've had a child do things that you wish they had not done. I mean, really bad choices. So, I mean, I get that. I have one of those kids. 
And um, so it, it gave me a whole new meaning of God's faithfulness and God's love and how you cannot like that child, but you love that child because they are your child. We are his people. He loves us. Questions, comments? Okay, so here they are. This is the mess that they are in. When I, when I kind of look at all this that is up here, we kind of see the state of affairs. I don't know what I did with that. Oh, it's on the floor. Sorry. Here's our state of affairs of Israel. And they've cried out. They're repentant. Who comes on the scene that's going to be the next judge? Jephthah. Who's Jephthah? Who is he? Son of Gilead? Son of a prostitute? How else would you describe him? He's a mighty warrior. Okay, what else? He's a good negotiator. He's a good communicator. Seems to be very diplomatic with his words and very articulate in, in his words. What else? He hangs out with worthless fellows. Why is he hanging out with those worthless fellows? Up in, is he in Tob? Tob, it makes me think of that story, Winkling, Blinkling and Nod or whatever. Anyway, he's in Tob with the worthless fellows. Why is he there? He's gotten run out by his half-brothers who have said, you know, you're the son of the prostitute. You don't have any inheritance with us. And they run him out. So he's an outcast, isn't he? Yeah, a very unlikely person. So how does he end up judge? Hmm? Well, let's get the details in there first. Yes, but, but yeah, the leaders of Gilead, they go down and get him. And they say, they kind of negotiate with him, don't they? Hey, well, you're a mighty warrior, and we need to be delivered from the hands of the Ammonites and the Philistines, so why don't you come up? You come do this for us. And, and Jephthah says, well, I don't know. Maybe you kicked me out. I'm an outcast. You didn't even want me, and now you want me, so why should I do this thing for you? But he agrees, doesn't he? He does do it. Now, at that point... At least on the surface, where is God? There's not any mention of God right there. So, what do I do with that? Because I agree with you, Scott. He is appointed, he's appointed by God, but yet I read this account, and it seems like God's not in it. So, how do I reconcile those two, those two facts? Did anybody else kind of struggle with that? Did you notice it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, in verse 10, And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, The Lord will be witness between us if we do not do as we say. And up above, in verse 9, Jephthah says to them, If you bring me home again to fight against the Ammonites, and the Lord gives them over to me, I will be your head. So I, I'm not making a point. I'm just making some observations. It seems like in the choosing of him that God's not in it that the elders are just making this decision, but yet somehow God is in it. Does that make sense? And I'm, I'm not a theologian, so I don't explain that well, but I just see, that's why I have this red arrow here. The elders are the ones that have gone and sought him out, but somehow God is in this anyway. And what scripture tells us is that he is one of God's judges. 
And he is included in Hebrews in that hall of faith as someone who had faith, which is another interesting thing when we see how the story of him plays out. Any comments about that, questions? I don't have an answer for you. It's just one of those things, those kind of conundrums that I look in Scripture and go, how can this be? It doesn't look like God's in it, but somehow God's in it. And if anything, that's, hang on just a second, that's the point I, I hope you're getting every week, and, and you'll really see this next week. That's why I put him up here with the red box around it. Even when it looks like he's not there and he's not active and he's not present, he is there, he is active, he is present. Yes. How can that, I don't know. It goes, it goes back to that, how can that be with, jo, with Joseph, his brothers? How can he stand there and say, what you all did to me, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. You know, it, it goes back to that, that um, centuries-long um, debate of human responsibility but God's sovereignty. Somehow we have responsibility, but yet God is totally sovereign. What were you going to say, Glenda? His umbrella covers it all. And these are the things that the theologians debate about. Yes, Phyllis. So we're trying to make, is, is some of what you're trying to say, Phyllis, is we're trying to make him um, hold to our human standards and our human perceptions? Because it, we, we look for him, how he's working and all that, because that's how we would perceive that he should be working. Yes. Candy, did you have something? Yeah, and so we want to put him in our frame of reference, in our box, and forget he is over the ark, over all of it, not bound by time, but his ways are not our ways. And I may not understand it, but I can take that check to the bank and cash it that he is sovereign and he's in control and he is present and for my good, and I can trust that. And I think we see him every week in that capacity in Judges. Anybody have a comment about that? Yeah, he does. It does seem like he's the one that brings the Lord into the picture. Definitely, that's a good observation, Genevieve. Okay, so what does he do? What is this uh, man of action, this mighty warrior, what's his first action? He negotiates. He calls the head, the king. Is it the king? The king of the Ammonites, and he negotiates first. And how does he do that? This just gives us an, some more information about this interesting person, Jephthah. Yeah, he says, well, what, what, what do you have against me? Um, what verse are we in? In 12. Yeah, sends messengers to the king. What do you have against me that you would come up and fight against me? And, of course, the king's accusation is, well, because when you came up from Egypt, you took our land from the Arnon to the Jabbok to the Jordan, which are three rivers, which you have that map. If, in fact, if you didn't look at that map, you might want to pull it out now so you can get a frame of reference of what's happening. You can see down there in the left-hand corner, Egypt. So they came up from Egypt, and he's claiming, well, this whole area here between these rivers, you guys came in and took it from us, so it's ours, and we want it back. And Jeff just says, no, let me remind you let me remind you of the history here of what happened. And how does he, what does he, is, did you notice how he did, did you notice what he did? He says, well, no, let me tell you what really happened, king of the Ammonites. You know, when we came up from Egypt and Israel went through the wilderness to the Red Sea, we came to Kadesh, Kadesh Barnea down here, and we asked 
you know, we asked the king of Edom, could we come through your land? And the king of Edom said, nope, you cannot. Do you see Edom down there? Okay. And then they sent to the king of Moab. Well, can we go through there? And Moab said, no. Do you see Moab on there? And Moab says, no, but so they didn't enter. For the Arnon was the boundary of, the Mo- of Moab. Then they sent messengers to Sihon, king of the Amorites, king of Hezbon. You can see Hezbon up in there. And said, well, can we come pass through there on our way to our promised land? And he didn't trust them. So he said, no, you cannot. In fact, he fought with Israel. So the Lord God of Israel, look in 21, gave Sihon all his people into the hand of Israel and they defeated them. So Israel took possession of the land of the Amorites who inhabited the country. They took possession of the territory of the Amorites from the Arnon to the Jabbok and from the wilderness of Jordan. So this disputed territory here that the Ammonites are saying it's ours and we want you to give it back. So he argues first from history, right? What does that tell you about him? He's smart. He what? He knows it. He knows it. So even though we're in a period of a lot of brokenness and idol worship, somehow this man is very well versed in what happened. So even when they say that Israel forgot God, how far did they forget him? They know that he knows the history. They're not completely forgotten. We're just not allowing him to be the one true God, the one and only God that I worship. But he knows this history and he knows it well because that's, that's what happened. What's his next appeal? Look in verse 24. Yeah, did you hear, Brenda? You possess what your God gave you, and we'll take what our God gave us. Anybody know why that's a logical argument at that time? In, in this particular period of time, they, they believed the gods were local. And so um, here's people in this little area and here is their God. So if I go out to battle against you, it's basically my God battling against your God. And if you win, I get possession because your God has had victory. And if I win, I get possession because my God has been more victorious. You've got to get in that Middle East, ancient Middle Eastern way of thinking. So he's appealing to theology, basically. Well, your God lost and ours won. So that makes it our land. Does that make sense? That's a very simplistic way of expressing it, but that's, that's the heart of, of what he's saying. And then he gives one final argument. What is it? How long have they been there? We've been here 300 years. Now why all of a sudden do you show up and want it back? So we've kind of got the law on our hand. We've got the law of... Possession, possession's nine-tenths of the law, and we've had it for 300 years. Now, why all of a sudden do you want to come in and say it's mine? When we've been living, when we've had it for this long. So do you see how he's very smart? He knows his history. He knows his argument. He want points, does his points, so that he leaves that king standing there going, wow, I really don't have any precedence for um, asking for this, and yet... Look, look what else he says. Look in 20, what's the most profound thing he says in verse 27? Did anybody really highlight it and mark it? What's he say right before, decide this day? It's profound. The Lord 
the judge. Why is that such a profound statement? He, he knew who God was. What? He claims it. What book are we in? We are in the book of Judges with very imperfect judges, are we not? And judges that each week we see less and less qualified to be a judge, less and less worthy of being a judge, and yet his recognition, you want to know who the real judge is? It's not me. It's God, the true judge, the true judge. He is the true one and only judge, and let him decide this day what's going to happen. And he decides, doesn't he? The Spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah, and he passed through. Did you look at the map? This is interesting. He passed through Gilead and Manasseh and passed on to Mitzvah of Gilead. And from Mitzvah of Gilead, he passed on to the Amorites. Basically, he made a loop through the land, just kind of looping through before he's going to go out to battle. And we know he's going to be victorious, but what does he do right before he does this? He makes a vow, and what is Jephthah's vow? What does he say? Okay, look in verse 31, of 30. If, circle if, if you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then, cause and effect, whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me, I will return in peace from the Ammonites, shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up as a burnt offering. What is he doing in making this vow? Why is he making this vow? Well, it's what, well, hang on to that last statement. Hang on to that. Okay, is, is this, this is what, what, why does he do it? Why is he doing this? He's putting conditions on his, he's, but more importantly, what is he doing? Well, he thought it might be a sheep. Well, we'll talk about that in a minute, if he really thought that or not. Why does he make the vow? That's my point. That's my question. Don't go as far as y'all are going yet. Why does he even make this vow? Say it louder, Marilyn. He wanted to be in control. Isn't he manipulating God? Okay, get your pagan, get your pagan mindset on. <laughs> what? Huh? Get your paganness on. Um, what? What? Did the, what did the pagans do in relation to their gods? They sacrificed to them in order for them to perform for them. That was the nature of pagan idolatry. Let me, I need to make you happy. And as I make you happy, you will give me what I want. That's why they were so appealing. And, and isn't that a lot? I mean, really, we can just stop right there and say, isn't that what we do with God? I will do this if you will do this, or I will be good and perform well and be obedient because I, in the back of my head, I think you're really that genie in the sky, and if I do these things, then you will bless me in the way that I think I should be blessed. Don't we all do that? Yeah, so when you get your pagan thinking on, of course he did this. He's living in a very pagan society. He knows the history of Israel, but these people are very confused. We've already seen how confused, we saw how confused poor Gideon was he had to ask for his first sign to be sure who you really are. Are you really who you say you are? Or could you be Baal or Asherah or somebody else? I need to know who's really, who's really talking to me here and calling me to go out and defeat the Midianites. So they're, they're broken, they're confused, and he makes this vow, I believe, in order to try to manip manipulate him. And he says, whatever comes out, I will offer as a burnt offering. What is a burnt offering? 
It's a sacrifice. How much of a sacrifice? Complete. Complete. A burnt offering is a whole offering. The whole thing is burned. It was um, voluntary. It was used to make atonement for sin. So I will offer this. Okay, now we can speculate. What did he think was going to come out? A what? Sheep or a goat? <laughs> no. Because who comes out? His only child, his only daughter. Okay, can I just tell you, when you go and you read commentators and scholars, there's a debate about what he really thought would come out. Number one, there's debate. Did he think it was an animal or did he assume it was a person? He just figured it was going to be a servant that would come out. Because it's an, if you start taking the clues of, of history, it, was, it would have been helpful for um, when they come back from victory of a battle, especially for the women that come out and greet them. So you have two options. Did you read the two options? One is he really did sacrifice his daughter. He really did offer her up as a whole and complete burnt offering because he was keeping his vow. Option number two, that some scholars will argue, is no, he really didn't do that because that would have been against God's law. And even though the pagans around them were doing child sacrifice, they would never have got stooped that low. So it must have been that she was being dedicated to service the rest of her life to the Lord in some respect. Which view do you hold and why? You'd like to think it's B? Who said B over here? Scott, why do you think it's B? Can I put you on the spot? Well, I know he does. I know that. <laughs> the question is, did he? <laughs> Nobody agrees. Yeah. It does teach us not to negotiate with God. What do you do? What do you do when the commentators and the scholars don't agree? Do you remember, Diane, a couple of weeks ago when you read something you'd read in a commentary and I kind of questioned it? So, so what do you do? Hmm? You read more, Anita? That God, that God also has respect for keeping the vows as well. Now, one commentator said... Um, younger in the NIV application commentary said that, um, and I'd have to go back and look it up, I've got it in my notes, but I have to dig, that there was actually a provision in the law if you made a rash vow to get out of it, and that he obviously didn't know that. Okay, here's what I want you to get from this. I, you know, I put in the front of your workbooks now all the times recommended commenta commentaries, and this, this, is a per this is a classic example of the value but yet the limitations of commentaries, that even the scholars can disagree and come to different conclusions. I mean, start reading about Arminianism and Calvinism, and you'll really find that, <laughs> that out, that they've been arguing that one for, you know, hundreds of years. So what do you do when you... This, this is your lesson first, number one. You can't have... If you're going to start using commentaries, be care, if you're only using one... Be careful. Does that make sense? You need two or three. If you really, especially when you get to these kinds of passages, you need two or three opinions. 
And then you, as a student, are going to have to take all the facts, take the skills you've learned, you know, what does the context say, what are the facts here, and then make a determination which side you're going to take, but be able to defend it. Does that make sense? So that, that's, that's a new method. That's just a whole other layer of studying God's Word. It makes it more complicated. But I, tr I tell you, the more you start studying like this, and if you start picking up commentaries, the more you find things that people don't agree. What did we have a couple of weeks ago? People were not agreeing on Bayrak. Was he being faithless or faithful and asking Deborah to go with him? And the scholars disagreed on that. So, so you have to use some discernment. And you, and you cannot say, well, my commentary said, um, yes, it did, but another one equally reliable may say something different. And I'm just telling you that so you're aware. And I wish, hang on a minute, I wish there was one that just gave us the right answer <laughs> and make life easier. Yes. Well, I think it's a huge difference. Did you all hear Debbie's question? What difference would it make in the scheme of things? Did he dedicate her to the Lord in perpetual virginity, or did he really kill her? To kill someone? Yeah. Uh-huh. The foreign gods, they did sacrifice their children. Which is worse, Debbie? Okay, so there's the difference. If, if he really did this, if he really took his daughter and honored that vow and offered her as a burnt offering, how decadent is that? How evil is that? How broken are these people? That in their twistedness of, I know the word, but I don't know the word, that I would do something like this. It's more palatable to say, well, he just offered her in perpetual virginity, where the text seems to... <laughs> The two places for me where that seems to be combated is it says a burnt offering. And a burnt offering is a burnt offering. I don't think there's any question about that. And second, why would she go mourn her virginity when she's going to have the rest of her life to mourn her virginity? That, that doesn't make sense to me. I, I had to write a paper on this in my Old Testament class and, and read all these different and then come to a conclusion. And that was the whole point of the paper, really, was to make you see something controversial, read the different views, and then come to your own conclusion and defend it. And um, I came to the conclusion that he really did, that he, he really did do this thing, that that's how broken this society is and that it, it just it fits in. But if someone wants to see differently, that if you that's fine. Jim, do you, what do you think? It's not, it's not clear. You could go either way. But see, even the commentators just agreed. Was he expecting an animal to come out? And, and they'll go into the um, gender of the whatever. Was it male? Was it female? What did that point to? And could they have had animals in the house? Could they not? And some will say yes, the way the houses were built. Some of the animals in the courtyard below would have lived there, and so one very well could have come out. Others will say, no, they didn't live that way. It just gets all muddied and confusing as to, well, which is it really? You just have to, from the text, decide and be able to defend it. Did you have a comment? You're going to have to talk a little louder, Anne. Well, it depends on how you interpret the text, why they're doing that. You know, whichever position you take, will then determine what they're lamenting. Do you see what I'm saying? God's, yes. 
Well, that's where we are. Yeah, left that we're not really sure. I will say, mo go ahead, Valerie. Uh huh. He's he, Valerie's right. Either way, he is reaping the consequences of this vow he should not have made. Either he really killed her, or she was never able to marry and have children, where he would have progeny, which was a huge thing. So either way, he suffers the consequences of what he should not have done. Anita, did you have a comment? Okay. Um, what happens next? We see Ephraim, real quickly, let's wrap up. We see Ephraim come out, and what's Ephraim's complaint? You didn't call us. <laughs> Why weren't we included? Where, where had they done that before? In Gideon, you didn't call us. We're, we're kind of ticked off, but we weren't included in this. But this time, what we see is, well, yeah, I did call you, and you didn't come. And, and Jephthah takes some vengeance on them, and he's quite creative in how he does it. How does he do it? How do you pronounce this word? We'll determine who you are if you're trying to cross over here. And he ends up killing, what, 40-some thousand of them? Uh, 42,000 are killed in, of the ones who got angry with him. He takes vengeance on them because I did call you. And you didn't even come. Now, I gave you a couple of verses because I think one of, a couple of the lessons to take away from, from Jephthah is one, keep in mind exactly what I've said. God is, God is present. God is working. And his hand is on all this no matter how broken it is. And also to see just the decline, the spiral decline of Israel and how broken they are and how far they keep sinking and yet God, even in the midst of that, can use someone as unlikely as Jephthah. He has some admirable qualities about him. But what, whatever he did with his daughter was not admirable. And what he does in killing his, his fellow Israelites, the Ephraimites, is, is vengeful. And that is not admirable as well. But what the, a theme that keeps coming up in this whole account of Jephthah is our words. And the power of words and, and once they're out, they can't be taken back in. And I gave you a, just a few scriptures at the end about our words and what did you see from that. These are all very familiar, familiar passages. What it, how, did, how did you, what did it do to you to read those? It's convicting, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, because what does it say? Look. Yes, it does. Yes, it does. You know, we like to use that little ditty, sticks and stones may break our bones, but words will never harm you. That's the biggest lie. Just ask anybody who heard a parent or a school, a school child on the playground say something when they're a kid and it's still haunting them 40, 50, 60 years later, still coming up, trying to, Satan using it to say this is your identity, you are this, not what God says you are. Anybody struggle with that? I do. Yeah. So there, there's life and death. Where words are many, transgression is not lacking. But whoever restrains his lips is prudent. Not in the Bible, but better to remain silent and appear a fool than to open your mouth and remove all doubt. Have you all heard that one? Sometimes it's just better to be quiet. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. 
Matthew 12, 36, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they have spoken. For by your words, you will be justified, and by your words, you will be condemned. So be careful what comes forth. That, that theme is just all over this. We have Israel's words, God's words, Jephthah's words, the rash vow, the, the speaking of the word, and the word being the identifier, are you from Ephraim, are you not? It's just into the whole literary device of what the author does in this story is just very interesting. And yet the lesson is there. Be careful what comes forth from your mouth. Questions, comments? Okay, let's take a break, and then Jim will come. So I'll, I'll start by just letting you know of a, a very interesting conversation. Uh, as you probably know, and I really don't, I don't have any interest in just uh, picking difficult scabs or uh, purposely causing problems. I really don't want to do that necessarily. I just think life is complicated, don't you? And I just think it's, um, I, I want to talk about it. That's If I've got a problem, it's that, is I want to talk about how complicated life is. And so uh, while I was in Thailand recently, I'm one of the gentlemen that actually came in to, to lecture near the very, very end. Weirdly enough, it was the last lecture. And he is a, an, uh, uh, not, he's not a believer. He is an anthropologist from Japan who is the, probably the world-renowned expert on the Lisu people. He's been studying them for almost 30 years, their migration, their cultural tendencies, uh, how religion has impacted this particular culture and how it's changed it. And he gave this long lecture about how, A, I really love and respect the Lisu people. We really got to be... It, it, so this conference that I was speaking at had um, a lot of Christians in it, but not only believers. There were a number of unbelievers as well. There were a number of government officials from Myanmar. It was this real weird hodgepodge of individuals. I'm teaching from the Gospels in the morning, and then you've got this atheist anthropologist kind of rounding out the session, you know. And he was just describing how you really got to be careful taking religion too far, that, you know, to, to tell these people to take down their idols really isn't, a good understanding of how culture works. And um, so anyway, it was just, it was kind of interesting. And the, the next part that I loved was me and this Japanese gentleman had an opportunity to sit beside each other at this meal. And uh, so I just thought, I'm talking about this. And so we just began to talk about, well, how do you even make value statements about anthropology? And how can you say, I love this about the Lisu people in terms of how they honor the older culture and how they do this, but we probably shouldn't. I mean, what's the basis that you would even use to say, I like this and I don't like this? Like, what would you use? So that was fun. Um, he, by the way, he didn't go, I would like to accept Christ. Where can you baptize me? So that's not how that ended. But he did give me his card and he said, there may be a possibility of being in Japan, not the too, too distant future. And he said, I would really like to talk more about this, which is really all I want to do. So as we're having this conversation, I, I just thought I should ask. I said, listen, I had an opportunity, and by the way, I'm really teaching Judges 10 right now, but I said, I've had an opportunity uh, for about a year to spend a lot of time with a young man from Germany, and I found it absolutely fascinating how this young man from Germany um, thought about the atrocities that happened in World War II. And it was very interesting to just talk to him about the Holocaust and to talk to him about um, what the Germans did 
and how the Germans treated people. And there was a profound amount of shame, sense of shame, and, uh, uh, you know, an apology uh, that he felt like he owed to the world for what Germany did. It was very interesting to me. And so I said, so how do you guys feel about World War II? And he looked at me, and uh, he said, well, and we got into this rather lengthy conversation, and I, he asked me this question, and he knew I was Canadian, but I had lived in the States for a long time, so probably clearly more associate myself with Americans. He said, well, how do you guys feel about, you know, particularly Nagasaki and Hiroshima, just killing a quarter of a million civilians? How do you guys feel about that? And I said, well, what's really interesting is, is that depending upon who you're talking to in America, but I would say the general mood is rather apologetic. I'm sure older people go, hey, we had to. Sorry, we just had to. But I walk onto a university campus and say, I believe that Nagasaki and Hiroshima was a really good decision overall. And I doubt if there's an American university in this country where you could say that without getting in serious trouble, to be honest with you. Now, again, I'm, I'm not even asking you to have an opinion on it yet. I, I, I would actually like to transport you a little bit back. And I, I want you to imagine that you're at either Nagasaki or you're in Hiroshima and you're going on about your day. You're going on about your life. And let's say you live on a little bit on the outsides of this. And then all of a sudden it happens. The bombing takes place. And you look up into the heavens and you say, God, why did you let this happen? How dare you? Where are you? And why did you let this happen to me? What's weird about that? What's weird about this Japanese person somewhere 28 miles outside the city limits of Nagasaki um, complaining to God about his complete disregard and maybe even almost like with evil intent that God would allow this? I mean, how many of you look at the Hiroshima, Nagasaki situation and go, I just cannot believe God let that happen. How many of you just, I have a real hard time believing in God because of Nagasaki and Hiroshima. Anybody else just really have a hard time sleeping at night because God let that happen? Like you have no problem. How many of us, actually I've never wrestled with that. I've wrestled with like whether or not we should have done it. I mean, that's a good question, but I don't know if I've ever really thought like it was God's fault. Would I be correct to say None of us have lost sleep over that. Why? Like, why don't we lose sleep over that? Okay, let me take a step back. So imagine that you're actually in uh, Atlanta at the time. Middle 1860s, you're in Atlanta. You're just trying to support your family, your husband's off for war, haven't heard from him for a really, really long time, there's rumor that the war is ending, it's just hard to fathom, and you hear that the Union Army is coming down, okay, and you've heard about destruction in the past, but you know, you're really hoping that somehow this is not going to happen to you, and then the burnings start. And now all of a sudden, Atlanta is aflame, and your part of Atlanta is on fire. And, and, and you cry out, God, why? 
why did you let this happen? Have you ever, you ever that might hit a little more home, right? How many hundreds of thousands of Americans were killed? I want you to just think about it this way, though. So there is a woman with children. And, and by the way, if you're like a Southerner, you're kind of still a little bit angry about it. <laughs> and if you're from like Illinois or New York, you're like, oh, yeah, it should have burned. Just like Nagasaki, right? Depending upon where you are, even in this country, that even that war has a couple of different responses to it. But you're a woman and you're asking, God, why did you let this happen? How could you have let this happen? But if you really take like a step back, that woman really, it, it's not like it's happening to her, right? Like Sherman didn't come down and just say, hey, I hate you and I'm going to burn down your house. You're a Southern woman and I was just, I was actually just in Washington the other day, but I thought I'd come down and burn down your house. That's not what happened, right? Like there was, there's lots of events that come to the burning of the woman's house, right? And as you back that up, there was actually like a rebellion that existed. A rebellion between North and South, right? And, and actually, even before that rebellion actually existed, there was a whole culture that was actually set in place. And that culture, by the way, goes in like a million different directions. I don't have time. I've even thought about trying to write this out in a much more de detailed format in light of my study of, of uh, Judges 10, which is where I want to spend the majority of my time. I figured Nancy would kind of run through the Jephthah, how dare he do that thing, so I kind of thought it'd be safe to do some of the preview stuff. So realize that how we get to the woman's house being burned in Atlanta is a complicated answer, right? But is it possible that in some way it begins, not in Atlanta, but in this coastal area, I wonder sometimes, in this coastal area of Africa, there's this country, and I've been to it, so it has a little bit of a different feel, and it's Ghana. And, like, there are these tribes that exist in this one particular area. And it's not a white-black thing, because even black people sold black people. And a young boy was taken from his tribe and put in a crate. And they traveled down these slave roads down to this port city. And they would take these people, and they would put these people in crates on ships. And they would sail them to Atlanta. Right? So I got a mom here going, why, God? Why did you? And so now the boy is on the ship, and now he is in Atlanta and all of this. And, and, and just think about all the atrocities that exist. It's interesting, even as I was hearing you guys talk about the statements that we make. And I, I'm not, I, I cannot stand here for one second and go, yeah, I don't know why you guys wrestle with that. This is a universal human condition. Why, God? It's amazing how we say, why God, whether you're in Nagasaki or whether you're in Atlanta or even whether you're an innocent pygmy in Ghana, which that'd be the wrong term, but using the American stereotype, that all of these situations really stem back from some rather broken wickedness that exists in every single one of them. I, I want to be careful with this. But I also want to, when I hear people go, I just can't believe this is happening to me. I can't believe that I'm going through this. Okay? I want to say, really? Like, you can't see how any decision you've ever made had anything at all to do with this? 
I can't. Like, I mean, literally, like, I can't think of one thing I've ever done wrong in my life. I can't think of one person I've wronged. Nobody ever says that. But we act in the middle of our brokenness as our house is burning, like somehow we're completely removed from all of this. Right? Like, how many of you, when you hear about, and I watched a phenomenal movie in German called Im Labyrinth von Schwischendorf or something like that. Phenomenal movie. Phen- I watched it flying back. You have some time when you're flying uh, to Asia and back. An incredible, incredible movie about a German attorney who decided we have got to talk about Auschwitz. Because in the early, listen to the time, in the early 1950s, Germany wanted nothing to do with that era. I don't want to, you weren't allowed to talk about it. We're not going to mention it. Um, he would walk around and he was like, so Aus- I mean, if I say Auschwitz, how many of you just go, that just gave me creeps? Like he would walk around and go, do you know what happened at Auschwitz? No. You ever heard of Auschwitz? No. You have no idea what's going, no. And the movie starts by a young man who walks up beside a school and he sees a man's deformed hand and he remembers it when he was at Auschwitz and the, Rome, or the German guard had that hand. And so now this guy is now teaching school while he was executing Jewish children just 10 years earlier. How the movie starts. And Germany wanted in the 50s to have nothing to do with Auschwitz. And this guy, this phenomenal attorney, uh, Johann Rodman, is the one who basically says, I'm not letting this go. I mean, uh, we're going to bring this back up. And he exposes what happens, and it's a big deal, right? So how many of you, when you hear about, like, Germany, and they have to go through dealing with the bad things that they did, you just feel, feel so sorry for them? And you know what? How many of you just think it's Auschwitz? It was 10 years ago. Let's just not mention it anymore. Let's just, let's just forget it. Let them teach right? He's probably, he was just following, how many of you just go, yeah? Or how many of you go, no? He should pay for that. Like, you, you can't just, you can't kill six million people and then just go on. Like, so, there's got to be some, how many of you feel that way? Now, that's important because we don't just end up with Jephthah generically. We really don't just end up accidentally with Jephthah. And I would even argue this, and and I'm going to save this much kind of for like this aching application, okay? And I share this ache with you. I'm not here as a prophet who can speak unaffected by this, okay? Uh, But even as my wife, and I'll just, I'll throw my whole family under the bus, um, actually gladly. um, But I just remember watching my son, my oldest son recently go through his divorce. And as much as there were many things that were outside of his control, much of it was within it. And he's not just some innocent victim. Everybody wants to pretend it's, it, it, that we're all like an innocent, I don't know if I'm an innocent victim in all of this. As I begin to look at it, and I begin to just kind of wrestle with this, it's just like, yeah, I, I actually believe that more people are to blame than, than others, but to try to sit here and go, God, why? Man, it's complicated, is it not? And not just complicated in a generic sense, but whenever we have this, this mindset, like somehow these things, as I've listed many of them, as they are happening, I do believe they are under God's sovereign control and his divine purposes 
in many ways to humble us and to bring us to a profound understanding of who he is. His, and by the way, both his grace and his mercy, as well as his divine judgment. And the book of Judges deals with all of that. It's this wonderful story of liberation, but it is a wonderfully painful story of liberation. And when I read the book of Judges, I always want to think like I'm, actually I hate Gideon. Um, is there anybody I like? Deborah. I'm Deborah. She's about the only one I think I like. I'm Deborah. I want to be her, right? I don't want anybody else. I want to be Deborah. But I never see myself as the people who have built an Asherah or the people who have bailed, fallen down to Baal. I'm never that guy. And, I'm, and the other guy that I'm not in my mind is I'm not the guy that built it. I'm not the guy watching, watching it being built and saying nothing. Never that guy either. I'm always Deborah, right? But there were a lot of people who kind of did nothing and then their life was caught up in the wake of all of the rest of this. Does that make sense? And I want, this will help you understand history in the hands of God. And I would really caution us as followers of God, as followers of Jesus Christ, understanding ourselves in human history, I always go to Isaiah 6. Isaiah 6 is a place that I love, and you don't have to turn there necessarily, but it's a place that I love to think about. How do I handle the pain and the complexity and the brokenness of me in the midst of my culture? Okay? And let me tell you what Isaiah did not say. Isaiah 6 does not go like this. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on the throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And there were these seraphim and these uh, angelic beings, and they are going around, and holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And then I said, wow, I am so glad that I'm a prophet, and I'm so glad that I'm above the sins of my people. And I'm so glad that I'm not as bad as the people around me. And I'm so grateful to be known as Isaiah, the wonderful prophet who is great and should be praised among all men because of who I am. That's not what the text says. Now, the whole first part is right. But where did I diverge? When Isaiah saw the Lord seated on the throne and he begins to see himself in this profoundly broken culture, his response was what? Whoa, literally the word for the lost there, Genevieve, it, some of them will say undone. It means I am being torn apart from the inside. See, that's not me. I am, um, I'm rather proud of my righteousness. I'm rather, actually, I, I can look at the screwed up world around me and go, yeah, but I didn't contribute to that. I didn't own any black people, Right? I've never bought a sex slave. I don't look at porn. And I hope those other people get it. And why, why is this happening to me that I have to live in this broken culture? Because I'll tell you, I've had nothing to do with this. You know, that's not Isaiah. Isaiah understands the profound complexity. And I don't say that just like, 
wow, isn't that complex? I just want you to think, one of the reasons why Jim Johnson has the audacity when he goes through or in the future goes through painful things that happen to him, his family, his community, his country, his world, or whatever, he under, I, I should understand that all of that is because I'm not like an individual as much as I am part of a community and a culture, right? Like, again, you have no problem. The person in Nagasaki, well, you shouldn't have been a Japanese person. Sorry. The person in Germany, hey, listen, that's just what happens when you guys decide to get, I'm, I'm no, hey, listen. And when God judges nations, be very, very, I mean, I, again, I'm not this kind of this doomsdayer, but should it hit the fan in America? Please slap me on the mouth. And I mean it. Some of you would like to. I mean it. Slap me on the mouth if you ever hear me say, I can't believe God's letting this happen to us. I can't believe God's letting this happen to us after all the amazing, wonderful things and we've never as a people done ever anything wrong. Slap me on the mouth. Because God will not be mocked. And that is how we get to Judges chapter 13, or sorry, 12 and 11, actually. Because in Judges 10, look at how this begins. And, and, I, and I absolutely love that I had lunch this, or breakfast this week. I meet with uh, my brother, Lil Barto, every Monday for coffee, and we had some conversations about, interestingly enough, Jephthah. Verse 6. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Now, remember, we talked. I talked about this, it seems like a month ago, probably almost was a month ago. Um, remember, what is evil in the sight of the Lord? What is evil in the sight of the Lord is idolatry. That's why I had to ask that Japanese guy, and I told him straight up, hey, I know that to you, the idol on the shelf means nothing, but that only fits in a system where the God above the idol means nothing. If there is no God in the heavens, then I agree, the idol on the shelf means nothing. I'm with you. If that premise, there is no God, is wrong, then the idol on the shelf may be the worst thing in the world. I said, that's what you don't understand about the Lisu Christian people as well as any Christian person is that you look at that, and the only reason why you say that idol on the shelf doesn't really mean anything, it can actually be rich and beautiful. Any of you guys have been to like a Buddhist temple and you go, wow, this is pretty? I do. I got some great photos of some really cool looking things. I mean, idols that are gorgeous, beautiful idols. Okay? Now, I'm by no means tempted to worship them, but I am like, wow, that's good architecture. Like, wow, that's a lot of gold. Like, wow, that's, that's, I mean, you can, you can get this, right? You, you look at this, I was, well, I was on top of this mountain overlooking Chiang Mai, and they put this huge um, uh, temple over it. And when I, when I look at that, I just go, wow, this is such, this is so cultural, right? It's just the culture. It's just beautiful. It's culture. According to the text, it's, it's, it's an abomination, by the way, which I love. I kept asking Stephen, do you feel like you should just come here and just burn it down at night? Ever wonder? 
if you should just tear it down? We had some fun conversations about that. And he asked me if I feel the same way about Boone Pickens Stadium. So it got interesting. <laughs> but yeah, here's the good news. I told him that we have no idols in America, that there's not a shopping mall that women talk about how much they love going there and how beautiful it is to shop there. We don't, so we don't have any of that in America. Our Christian people don't have those concerns. So the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and watch how that's described, and they served the Baals and the Ashtaroth, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the, and this is a big word here, hope you circled it, the gods of the who? The Ammonites. Served the gods of the Ammonites and the gods of the Philistines. So particularly the last three, I don't know if you noticed this, or maybe even Sidon as well, the Sidonians, the Moabites, the Ammonites, and the Philistines. What is so fascinating that they would worship those gods? Yeah? Say it, say it a little louder, Tony, because it's brilliant. No, but it is. Yeah? It's a little bit, here's what's fascinating. What, what, one, of the, one of the thoughts, one of the ways I thought I would even go with this was, James says something very similar to this. Like, why... Why do you people, um, why do you like poor people, J James, the brother of Jesus in the letter goes, why are you so impressed with rich people? They're the ones that want to impress you, oppress you. Like a rich person comes into your service and you're like, oh, oh have this seat, have this seat. Why are you doing that to them? They're the ones sticking it to you. They're the ones causing the problem. And yet when they walk in, you go, ooh, isn't this awesome? Isn't that a weird human condition? That the people that hurt us, the people that spite us, the people that don't even really think about us, but we kind of wish they liked us and we kind of wish, and then all of a sudden, as soon as we gain their favor, we just almost bow down to them. Isn't that an interesting phenomenon? I hate the Philistines. So what are you going to do? I'm going to worship their God so that we can share in their power. Right? So why did the Israelites begin, think of this, why did the Israelites begin to worship the gods of the Sidonians, the Ammonites, the Moabites, and the Philistines? Why? Because they were ruling over them. Instead of trusting what? What God could provide. It's really interesting how I, 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 would, I would want to say, like, I have no idea what that's like, except I know exactly what that's like. Because I can't tell you the number of people who I've heard say, oh, you know what I hate? I just hate that in our culture, we have to have our kids on traveling teams and we have to travel all the time and we're always so busy and we're always going all these places. I just hate it. Why? Because I'm doing it now. But why are you doing it? Well, because I, if I don't do it, my kids are going to be losers. And I can't not, so I'm going to have to do it too. And I just wish we didn't have to do this. Huh, so what's your plan? We're going to do it. Really? Yeah. How did that happen? Like, how many of you just go, I just hate the materialism in America, and yet you still take the raise at the end of the year? Anybody? So it's interesting. Mean, I, I want us to realize, like, we're Israelites. We are. Now, we're not only Israelites, actually. We're saved Israelites, if you're. Jesus Christ. So there is a redemptive element. I never want us to just kind of just sit and stay in their muck, but to just try to pretend we're never dirty is a lie. 
And so where does this all begin? This all begins with the fact that they have done evil in the sight of the Lord. Nobody is innocent. All of the pain and all of the hurt. I don't want to hear a, oh, sorry is to me. And by the way, for those of us that want to go, yeah, but I didn't worship the Baal. I didn't worship the, like, let's just recognize this, that in the end, there were people in Nagasaki and there were people in Atlanta and there were people who, who didn't either. And this is just how God's retribution, God's judgment, and even God's mercy exists in the world. And there is not just individual blame, but there is also societal blame, right? So I'd love to pretend that, yeah, you know, I just, I hate divorce and that divorce is growing. And yet I can't tell you the number of times I've kind of, ah, oh, well, you know what? She's probably better off. Don't you think? Do you think she's kind of better off? How many of you think she's better off? Oh, I think she's better off. Oh, okay. Now, by the way, Jim, that's going to come back and bite you, Right? When that culture then kind of infects a young girl who's going to marry my grandson down the road. I didn't have anything to do with that. Let's take this step back. Come with me. Do you remember that one time you looked and you said, yeah, but isn't she better off? Okay, but you can't make that correlation, can you? And listen, I don't think it's a one-to-one correlation but have any of you kind of shared any of the evil attitudes or the behaviors or the worship of the Ashtaroth, the Sidonians, the Moabites, the Ammonites, or the Philistines? That's why it's really good to say, I am a man in the presence of God who is undone. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live amongst a people who have unclean lips. Woe to me. So it continues on, and they took, and they forsook Yahweh and did not serve him. And so the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them. Remember, this is kind of an interesting phrase. God sold them. I love asking people, would God ever sell his people and give them to another person? And the answer is yes. <laughs> it actually says it a number of times. Be very careful. Whenever somebody tells me, you know what God would never do? And by the way, I think there are things God would never do. But whenever I hear somebody says that, I'm like, I'm about to hear something stupid. Because you're, you're basically being very selective on what you're going to pick. So God sold them to the hand of the Philistines and into the hands of the Ammonites. And they crushed and oppressed the people of Israel that year. For 18 years. I don't know if you circle time periods. I, I love to do this sometimes. Let's just sit here and, and just get a feel for what 18 years is like, okay? So start the clock now. Okay, how many of you want to wait 18 years here? Like 18 years, it's getting shorter all the time, I have to admit, okay? But it's still a really, really, really long time. Hey, tell you what, to just practice, why don't for 18 years you just pray that God would do something and never give up? 18 years. I don't know if I could do that. Right? How many of you would go, man, I'd give up. Two years, I'm done. Wow, two years, you're spiritual. 18 years. This is a great lesson to learn. One of the things I love about the judges is that when God is moving and when God is acting, like I prayed Thursday and I don't understand why something has. I gave God all weekend, including Sunday afternoon. And I woke up Monday and it wasn't fixed. And it really bothers me because I 
and everyone I know did nothing wrong. This is how we talk. This is how, this, this is how I talk. This is how I act. This is how I think. And yet this book can really hit us pretty hard. So for 18 years, they oppressed all the people of Israel who were beyond the Jordan, the land of the Amorites, which is in Gilead. And the Ammonites crossed the Jordan to fight against Judah and against Benjamin and against the house of Ephraim. So notice, by the way, like later on in chapters 12 and 13, when, where, uh, chapters 11 and 12, when that comes up, like you want to circle the lines. The Sidonians is going to come back. The Ephraimites are going to come back. So you want to make sure that you pay attention. This is why these aren't just random names. I can't go into it in all detail, but when you see them, realize like this is a unit. So kind of understand how these names and situations build on one another so that the house of Israel was severely distressed. Now, why were they distressed? Let's go back and make sure that we understand why. They were distressed, cause number one, because the Lord handed them over to their oppressors. So why were they going through pain? Because God handed them over to their oppressors. Why did God hand them over to their oppressors? Because they forsook the Lord. And you've got to walk through those steps. Can I just tell you a little bit of an application? A, a, a mature believer, maturing mature believer, is able to not just jump all the way back, but they're able to go, maybe God is doing something here. But it's painful. God would never do anything painful. Can I tell you about Calvary? Can I tell you about Calvary? Okay? Oh, so God just hated Jesus? Wow, you so don't get Calvary. Right? So you need to go back and you need to be able to ask the question, how is God's hand at work here? And by the way, covenantally, we've been beating this horse and it's good to remember, covenantally God is exposing his people for a reason. Why? Because they forsook him. So it's not just God hates me, it's there has been a forsaking. Which, by the way, I would just caution you against ever trying to kind of line up your life this one-to-one -one way. I wouldn't say don't. I'd say some of that reflection can be really, really healthy. Just be careful putting periods where God's got an ellipsis, dot, dot, dot. Okay, be very careful with, well, the reason why my sister who had leukemia, um, now why she has, um, what does she have? Colon cancer. So much cancer in my family, I can't remember what, who's got what. Um, the reason why she's got colon cancer is because she married an unbeliever. That's why. And God's trying to teach her. Huh? I, I, but I'll tell you this. I don't know. Maybe. If you tried to tell me God would never do it for that reason, I'm like, I got to show you the Bible again because it just, it is way more complicated than that. I do know God loves her more than I do, more than you ever could. I do know that, but to try to sit here and to try to figure out one-to-one -one correlations, I think is very, very dangerous. But to sit humbly and to try to trace the hand of God, remember he is always loving and holy, and righteous, ready to forgive, right? The fullness is why you've got to know who God is. If not, you're going to misread. What Does God hate Israel? No, God loves Israel. So is God punishing him? Yes. Why? He loves that. You have to have a theology that goes that deep. So Israel is severely distressed. Verse 10, and the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. So what they would have never done if God had never handed them over is cried out to him. 
they would have kept following the Baals. And is that worse? What's worse, oppression or crying out to the Baals? And the answer is crying out to the Baals. Like that's worse. And we don't get that. The worst thing that could possibly happen to you or to your children is that you slowly lose sight or awareness of God. Not that you get sick, not that you lose your job, not that you, no. Actually, what's far worse is that you somehow find provision and protection in things other than God. That is far, 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 far worse, is to fail to recognize the power and the presence of God. So the people cry out and they said, we have sinned against you because, you have for, because we have forsaken our God and have served the Baals. And it's interesting. The Lord said, okay, well, now that at least you're sad, everything will be okay. He doesn't do that, does he? Right? I don't know, but I don't know about you, but it's really, really interesting how um, when Andrea and I are dealing with our kids um, and the kids do something wrong, and Andrea and I are ready to discipline them. It's amazing how quick Andrea is, and I love her to death, really do. It's amazing how quick she is. Oh, okay, I'm glad you're sorry. Oh, okay, I'm glad you're sorry too. We're going to first cut off your right arm, and then we're going to, I mean, I'm glad you're sorry. It's a great place. I always tell my boys, hey, I'm really thinking within the next five months, we will be done punishing you for what you've just done, you know? So I'm, I might be on the other side of that. But yeah, are you that kind of person that when someone starts... I'm sorry, I apologize. You're like, okay, we're good. We're good. You felt you said you were sorry. What else can we do? Right? Watch what happens here. The people said, sorry, and the Lord said to the people, verse 11, did I not save you from the Egyptians? Go how much it goes back to his history. Did I not save you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites? And now he's going to start listing the gods that they've served. And from the Amorites and from the Ammonites and from the Philistines. The Sidonians also, and the Amalekites, and the Maonites oppressed you, and you cried out to me, and I saved you out of their hand? Answer, yes. Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods, therefore I will save you no more. Now, you could put a period there, because there is one in the text, and just leave it. Which, by the way, God does that sometimes. I'm, I'm just going to, I'm going to, the Bible says things at times like, and God just closes his ears and he will not listen anymore. We, we, we talk as though like God never, ever, 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 ever do contrary to biblical evidence. Now, by the way, that is said, and yet it does seem to go further, so let's not just leave it there. He says, I'm going to save you no more, and I love verse 14. Go and cry out to the gods whom you have chosen, and let them save you in your time of distress. Isn't that interesting? That's, that's an underlinable verse. You go to the gods that you think can save you, and tell me how that works for you. And that, it's, it's interesting, right? Like when you really look at the Bible, again, there's that. My boys want to learn their lesson in like seven minutes, right? They want to learn their lesson in seven minutes. But when their brother wrongs them, then they think we should make that linger a lot longer. But when they're, so, right? How many, is that not true? 
man, oh, you can't just let him get away with that. You know how to stick it to him. Okay, and you too? No, because I'm really sorry, Dad. And God is taking them through a rather rich, deep, and complicated process. And part of what God says here, and he does this over and over and over again, is he says, listen, why don't, why don't we do this? Why don't you go to your gods, since you didn't like me, you thought I couldn't do it. You go to them and see how they help you out. And the answer is what? What are these gods going to be able to do for them? And the answer is nothing. Like our, That's how we actually got here. And so it's interesting. See if they can save you from your time, which I just have to just stop and ask. And that's why if you think that maybe, oh, if I just have the right marriage, then I'll be happy. Or if I just have the right job, then I'm going to be happy. Those are the gods. If just the right presidential candidate wins, right, then everything will be okay. Like everything will be just good then, right? Okay, go to your gods and see if they actually provide it. I love talking to someone who's about to get married and then having them for lunch three years later. And, and by the way, almost every time, marriage is still good, but it's, it's not the savior anymore. They quickly realize, wow, I thought this was going to be, and not that it's, hear me, it doesn't have to be bad. It's just, it can't do what I thought it could do, right? How many of you, I'm going to have a baby. This is going to be so amazing. And then three years later, you're not like, wow, this is so amazing. It's like, wow, I love, no, I love her. I absolutely love her. She is so Wow, this, it's, 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 just, it's not just upside. There's way more involved. Like everything, there's way more involved. I really do think about that. Think about these are the gods. I got this job. It's going to be incredible. Yeah, come, and, come talk to me in three years. And by the way, the job may still be good, but you're going to quickly find out it's not God. That's the story of the book of Judges. And the people of Israel said to the Lord, but we have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you, only please deliver us, what does it say? This day, not 18 years, please deliver us this day. And look at verse 16. So they put away the foreign gods from among them, and they served Yahweh. And then this is the phrase I want to end on. I find this very interesting. And he became impatient. Isn't that weird? Like, is God patient? Oh, yes, the patience of God. The great patience of God. When I was reading this, I thought, that's just a weird word. So what is God becoming impatient over? By the way, another thing God becomes impatient with is, is, is wickedness. God becomes impatient with wickedness, and so he judges it. Weirdly enough, God becomes impatient. This is what I, this is what I love about this text. God sees wickedness, right? And is impatient, but he waits and waits and waits, right? 1600s and far before that, but for our little boy in Ghana. 1600s, 1700s, well, he's already in America. 1700s, sold, family sold, 1800s, 1860. Right, And then all of a sudden it seems, I really wonder sometimes if that's not God's judgment. Hey, you want to treat people like this? Hey, you want to act like this? Hey, you want to? Tell you what, we'll, 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 we'll eradicate an entire generation. Good people and bad people, by the way. Wow. So God is, in, I mean, we could call him incredibly patient, couldn't we? We could also say, but his patience in that sense doesn't last forever. 
and he waits and waits and waits, and then all of a sudden he can wait no longer, and he judges. By the way, that's how we got to this. Why does the conquest happen? Does everybody know the, the, the best answer for why Joshua and the children of Israel get the land of Egypt when they do? Why? Because the sins of the Canaanites had reached its measure, which might be why the nation of Israel waited 400 years in Egypt. Think about that. Israel waits 400 years in Egypt. I don't know if all of that was in slavery. I think it was more the tail end. All of that, why? Because God is patiently waiting for the Canaanites and their sins to reach their full measure. And then they come in. Does that make sense? And here we have in this verse, and the Lord became, the, the word that is almost always this, this, this particular Greek word or Hebrew word, it's like kashar or katar. It actually is most commonly translated to reap. I don't even know if I fully understand how these two words relate together. It's most found in the book of Ruth with just literally to reap, to gather in, to gather in. I don't know how that has to do with the few times it's actually uh, translated impatient. I don't know if it's like, Farmers trying to get the weed in. I have no idea. That's all I kept thinking. But you have in this narrative, after 18 years, after all of this, that I was trying to pay attention to the date. How did I get to this message? Kind of, I was paying attention to the dates. They forsake for a long time. Um, 18 years, the Lord hands them over. This day, and then it's almost like it's rather immediate. And the Lord becomes impatient over the misery of Israel. And he rescues them. Is that not an amazing God? The fact that he can wait so, so, so long over injustice and wickedness. And yet when he sees his people suffering, he is what? He is quick to save. He is quick to rescue. I hope that you also have in the midst of this profound, complicated and deep understanding of who God is. I, I really do. I, I hope that you look at your life and when you're praying and when you're dealing with the very real pain that you're going through, relational pain, physical pain, health, whatever the pain it is, I hope that you have a bigger understanding of maybe what's happening and maybe you can kind of get off, I had to get off my self-righteous platform. Why would anything bad ever happen to a perfect person like me who grew up in a, nah, I don't know about you, but a perfect family? And, and I, I, just, I haven't had anybody, in, and none of my relatives have ever done anything wrong. Um, you know, just, it's just perfection everywhere. So I have to come down off of that and realize, wow, maybe God's doing some stuff. But I really want you to kind of wrap up with that idea, that profound sense that as much as God is willing to punish and to even to walk us through the steps of helping ex us experience the failures and the futility of our own gods, that in deep repentance, that the Lord is also impatient over our own misery, and he is also quick to save. And therefore, he sent Jephthah. Pretty screwed up dude. You've already talked about that. Pretty screwed up dude as his temporary savior. Let's pray. God, I thank you for this text and for, uh, God, the reminder of just how 
broken our culture is. Um, God, here, like in this group, in our church, we, 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 we're, we're very aware of how bad our culture is. We're very aware of how messed up our country is. We're very aware of um, this younger generation and how they don't get it. And God, I think we're beginning to lose sight of the fact that uh, we're probably pretty messed up too. God, I so get frustrated when other people have bad and poor ideas about how things should be in our world, and particularly in our country or in our city or even in our church. And yet, God, um, stories like this remind me that uh, without Jesus, at best, I'm like Jephthah. And so I'm just grateful for you, for how much you love us and how much you are willing to um, punish us redeem us and restore us. God, it's, it's good for me anyway to sit in awe of texts like this, to be humbled by them. As Nancy said, to let our words be few. So God, I pray that we would learn how to cry out to you, that we would learn how to be not miserable, but to live in misery faithfully. Teach us how and when to put away our idols, to grow in dependence and leaning on you. God, I pray that we would be free from just seeing how people in Thailand are just nuts for bowing down to their ancestral gods, and and then we fail to recognize how we do a very similar thing in our own culture. God, open our eyes. It's in Jesus' name we humbly pray. Amen.